0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Welcome to
1: Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. James Truslow Adams it's probably not a name that most of us have ever heard, but he coined a term that I'm guessing you know. Adams was a historian in the early part of the 20th century, and he wrote a book that tried to capture the essence of America. And part of that essence, he said, was three simple words, three words that way outlived him and that have shaped the way that people all around the world think about this country, the American dream. Since Adams came up with that phrase, people have wondered, who owns the American dream? Where it's headed? Is it dead? Scott Gilmore says, it isn't dead at all. It's alive and well, and it's living in Canada. Gilmore is a former Canadian diplomat. He's a columnist for Maclean's and a contributor to the Boston Globe. And he's author of the essay, The American Dream Has Moved to Canada. Scott, thanks for being here.
2: Kara, it's my pleasure.
1: So when did you start thinking that Canada was maybe more of a home for the American
2: dream than America? Well, it was very recently. Um, my family has deep American roots. My parents live in the States. My, my brother works in the in the States. I have worked back and forth in New York for years. And I have always seen America as being the American dream. It's, it's the land of opportunity. It's where great ideas go to to thrive. And then we had this strange thing happen in Canada over, uh, over the last few months, which is we've got refugees arriving on our southern border,
3: hmm.
2: which has almost never happened before. And they're either refugees who have already arrived in the United States and now are feeling threatened and have decided to try their luck in Canada. They feel they might be safer there. Or increasingly... It's economic migrants and refugees coming from Central America who are making their way, as we've seen for decades, north up across the Rio Grande in the United States, but they keep going now. Hmm. They're they're, they're walking into Canada. And so I decided to take a look one day at what their life will look like in Canada versus the United States. And I was surprised at what I found.
1: Obviously, in America, uh, there are different views on people immigrating, refugees coming here. Is Canada concerned about immigrants coming over their southern border?
2: There's a debate in Canada, but the level of concern is much lower than what you see in the United States or in Europe. And what makes that particularly interesting is that I think in the United States right now, 11 percent of the population is foreign-born. In Canada, it's 20 percent. Um, and it's the same when you compare Canada to, to Europe. We have far more foreign-born citizens or, or non-citizens in Canada than, than most other countries, and yet we're f- much, much more accepting of the idea of taking in newcomers and refugees and asylum seekers and immigrants. Canada has set up a system uh, where you have two types of refugees, basically. You have refugees that are accepted by the government, and then you have refugees that are sponsored by Canadian citizens. So, if you get five people together, you can sponsor somebody from Syria to come to Canada, and you're responsible at that point to make sure that you know that they know that they buy their winter clothes, that they set up a mm-hmm. bank account and that. And what we found is that with the the refugees that are coming in under the government program, um, they're they're being looked after the Canadian welfare system to the extent that it that it's needed is used. And they have a relatively difficult time as newcomers integrating. A relatively Um, difficult time. A relatively difficult time in in the Canadian context. They still integrate much, much better than what we're seeing in places in Europe, in Germany, Netherlands, or in parts of the United States. Canada is not a melting pot. It's a mosaic, and and we tend to absorb other cultures and other peoples um, in, in, in a smoother fashion. But what's interesting is that the refugees that are being sponsored by Canadian citizens are thriving. Um, they're integrating very, very quickly. It's because they immediately are being plugged into social networks that, that usually transcend their language or cultural group. Um, they're having an easier time finding jobs, easier time finding housing, and they're, it's turning into quite a success story. Hmm.
1: Okay. So this is super interesting to me that if you get together, you're saying with like four of your friends, you right. can sponsor somebody to come over from Syria. How many ordinary Canadians are getting together and doing that kind of thing?
2: Um, the demand is greater than the supply. Uh, there are more Canadians that are stepping up than the government's willing to actually allow in. And I think it's because it, it plays on a couple of Canadian um, touchstones. So in the, the boat people crisis of the 1970s, Canada took in a, a large number of Vietnamese and other South Asian um, refugees and they integrated very, very well across the country and became part of the Canadian story. And so this idea of taking a refugee into your suburban community your or your your uh, you know your rural small town, that wasn't so alien, it wasn't so strange. it seemed like something that Canadians do.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, I, I talked about um, James Adams in the beginning, the guy who came up with this uh, this phrase, "The American Dream." He he thought that dream was about mobility, that you could essentially come from anywhere with any background um, and succeeding in America was a lot more about talent than, say, you know, he thought about old Europe and it was much more about station, let's say, and money and that kind of thing. Um, how do you define the American dream or or we could say the Canadian dream, but, but like what the dream is uh, now in today's world for success and and inclusion the the way that, you know, we think of the American dream?
2: You know, I think that the the public imagination of the American dream has been fairly consistent in both the United States and and Canada and the world going back 100 years. It's the idea of going from rags to riches, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, self-made man, all of those cliches um, embody this idea that you're right, no matter who you are, or, or where you come from or who your parents are, that you could end up one day like Steve Jobs mm. or Donald Trump. Right. And Steve Jobs, I, who, interestingly,
1: the son of a Syrian.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And Donald Trump, the grandson of a, of a German. Right, right. When I began to see these refugees coming across the border and I began to take a look at some of these numbers of, you know, what will their life be like in Canada versus the United States, I began to look at the idea of opportunity and social mobility. And I was stunned at what I found, which is that social mobility in the United States has declined. And more importantly, it's been surpassed by a lot of other countries in Europe and in Canada. So right now, if you're living or born into the poorest quintile, the, the poorest one-fifth of the population, you're twice as likely to make it to the top of the, of the food chain to become the, the top quintile for wealth in Canada than you are in the United States. Huh. And similarly, the correlation between the income that your parents make and the income that you eventually make is twice as strong in the United States as it is in Canada.
1: Hmm. Was there a point at which Canada and America started to diverge? Where do you see that happening? When?
2: So as an outside observer, I've spent a lot of time in the United States and, and traveled across it quite extensively. But I still will put an asterisk on my observations. I'm, I'm, I'm not living in the United States. I'm not American. And so these are upside observations. But to the outsider, it The differentiation began with the healthcare issues and education issues. You see in the United States a healthcare system that's unlike anything else in the world, where more money is spent on it with fewer, with poorer outcomes than anywhere else. So Americans' um, life expectancy used to lead the world. It's now fallen far behind most other countries, including countries like Cuba. The cost of your education, this used to be the great leveler in the United States, now Education comes with very, very high costs. And so from my perspective, what you're seeing in the United States is that there are some systemic issues that are making it more and more difficult for the poor to succeed, because whether it's healthcare costs that are bankrupting somebody who's living on $35,000 a year and breaks their leg, and, and that alone prevents them from making their mortgage payments, mm-hmm. Or their inability to put their kid into a good school because they simply can't get the student loans or they can't carry the tuition costs. That has a huge impact, I think, on the overall health of the society.
1: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller and I'm talking with Scott Gilmore, a former Canadian diplomat and author of the column The American Dream Has Moved to Canada do you think that there are particular policies that Canada has enacted over the last few decades, say, um, and it can be more recent if you want, um, that you think were have paid off in a way that um, hasn't allowed it to, you know, in your words, kind of capture the American dream maybe a little bit more than, than America has?
2: Well, for example, Canada has a very conservative banking regulatory system. And as a result, it's much more difficult for our banks to issue subprime loans. Hmm. And as a result, we escaped the economic collapse that we, that we saw in, in other countries. And our poor parts of our society were not as badly affected as a result. But I wouldn't give too much credit to Canadian policymakers uh, having some sort of special wisdom. I think a lot of the differences that we're seeing between Canada and the United States have to do with luck and have to do with geographic location. So Canada has one neighbor, the United States. It's a really good neighbor. As a result, we don't have to worry about our border defenses. Hmm. In fact, because we sit within you know the security zone of the United States, we can neglect our military entirely, which frees up billions and billions of dollars hmm. every year for for other um, causes and for the for the welfare system.
1: So uh, back for a minute to the issue of immigration that we were talking about before. Um, Clearly in the U.S. our policies around immigrants are changing and that's still in flux. We don't fully know where it's headed. Um, But just thinking about economics here, uh, about creativity and invention, do you think that Canada has been saying to refugees and immigrants who are more in the high-skilled category, if you can't get a visa to come to the U.S., or if you just don't know where immigration policies are headed in the U.S., uh, come to Canada. Like, their loss is our gain.
2: You know, I have to confess, Canada always suffers from, I would argue, from a chronic sense of smugness on some things. And, <laughs> and it's getting a little bit more acute these days because mm. we are benefiting from a lot of the policy decisions that are being taken in the United States right now. Um, we are seeing a movement of people, you know, like you like you suggested, well educated entrepreneurs, business travelers, possible immigrants who are looking at Canada now. foreign students are now looking at Canadian universities much more enthusiastically than they have in the past
1: and And do you see I, I wonder if you hear from CEOs, from the tech community um, uh, uh, just sort of anecdotally about you know, more people being sent to Vancouver because, look, they're, it's, you know, in the same time zone as a lot of American cities, um, uh, you know, on the, on the West Coast or t- Toronto or wherever it is, because you can work there, you can Skype with um, your colleagues in the U.S., and maybe you don't have to go through the kind of, you know, red tape.
2: Absolutely. It's not just anecdotal. Uh, the, the numbers back it up. Um, it's becoming part of the corporate strategy in Canada to take advantage of the proximity in the United States, our close economic integration, but at the same time, the ease of doing business here. So it's easier to fly into Canada. It's easier to pass through Canadian customs uh, for on a business visa than it is in the United States. Um, anecdotally, there aren't the hassles that we're now seeing going into the United, into the, across the US border. Um, so it, it is absolutely part of Canada's strategy and not just in the high tech sector. And things like the movie industry as well mm. is now uh, growing rapidly in both Toronto and Vancouver because of these issues.
1: Does our uh, 2016 election factor into your thinking on this or is the, this issue of the American dream maybe migrating north, is that something that is occurring on a much longer, bigger timescale?
2: Well, it, it was the election that, that provoked me into thinking about this and into looking into the numbers. And and because of that, I discovered that home ownership is higher in Canada. Education rates are higher. The the cost of education are lower. Life expectancies are longer. Vacation time is longer in Canada. And it goes on and on and on. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is much easier achieved objectively now in Canada the United States. But those numbers did not change on the day of the election. Some of these represent trends that go back 40, 50, 60 years. And so I think the United States has done a very, very good job of marketing the American dream, much more so than Canada has in in even coining the phrase, the Canadian dream. Um, But now that there are such stark differences on the political landscape, and not just between Washington and Ottawa, between Washington and all of its allies. we're looking at those things a little more closely and we're beginning to question some of our assumptions about what it's like to live in the United States.
1: Scott Gilmore is a former Canadian diplomat. He's a columnist for Maclean's and author of the essay The American Dream Has Moved to Canada. Scott, thank you so much. Karen, my pleasure. Scott mentioned some stats that may not make the U.S. look so great up against Canada. One of the ones he talked about is lifespan. People in Canada live a little bit more than two years longer on average than people in the U.S. Another stat is about getting a college degree. 57% of young adults in Canada have gotten a college degree. In the U.S., the number is 14 percentage points lower, 43%. We've got Scott's article, The American Dream Has Moved to Canada, and more data pitting Canada against the U.S. on our website, innovationhub.org. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.
0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.
1: About 20 years ago, I took a train from Massachusetts to Iowa. I thought it would be romantic. I thought I'd discover America. Turns out my seat was broken. Worst ride of my life. Iowa, though, was amazing. And for someone who had mostly grown up in East Coast suburbia, I felt like I was discovering America. I told my mom that Iowa was so great that we had to go back. And we did. We went to Living History Farms in Urbandale, where you trek through farmland that connects farmhouses from different eras. There's a main street from 1875. It has all sorts of shops on it. We went to Pella, which is a Dutch town in flat farm country. They've got tulip queens and Dutch architecture and Dutch pastries. Obviously, we talk a lot about divisions in this country, and those divisions are certainly ideological, but they're also geographical, which you know if you've ever seen one of those red and blue election night maps. So why the geographical differences? Does geography itself, farmland, mountains, suburbs, oceans, do they shape us? And do they push us towards who we ultimately become? Robert Kaplan is here to answer those questions. He's the author of the book, Earning the Rockies, How Geography Shapes America's Role in the World. And it took him on a trip, not for the first time, across America. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Robert, welcome.
3: It's my pleasure to be here.
1: So, you write in your book that we used to think of America as kind of this uh, geographic through line, the the cliché sea to shining sea, but that we don't really anymore. Uh, How do we see it differently, do you think?
3: Um, For most Americans, our airports have become the new bus stations. So people fly everywhere, and they get in a plane, and they fly from the East Coast to the Rocky Mountains, and they think that geography has been defeated. Hmm. Uh, uh, What I found out in multiple trips across America and in a lot of reading is that geography still defines us. For instance, did you know that America has more miles of navigable inland waterways than much of the rest of the world combined? I did not. And it's that river (laughs) system. And that river system and how it's laid out uh, uh, across the Midwest is what made America a great power originally in the 19th century. Hmm. And, you know, if you live in Nebraska or Iowa or Wyoming, your attitude towards foreign affairs, towards America's role in the world can be very different. And there are a lot of reasons for it, but one of them is geographical.
1: Hmm. So, obviously, uh, a lot of the issues that we think the most about as a country, that we debate about abortion, climate change, immigration, we think of those things as things that exist in our heads, right? You know How you think about climate change is that's in your head. That's not a physical thing. Um, but do you think that there are places that people live that actually have these kind of subtle influences in terms of thinking about whether it's foreign policy or domestic policy or whatever it is that like, influences how they think about these issues that you could think of as like, oh, but these are just ideas. These aren't physical things.
3: Um, I think what's happened is this. It sounds ironic, but just stay with me for a moment. Okay. (laughs) That that globalization, meaning technology, the jet age, cyber connectivity, um, it has shrunk the earth. Technology has made geography smaller and more claustrophobic, but Mm -hmm. it has not defeated it. So what happens is that we're swept up into a world maelstrom, a world system, and a part of our population adapts very well to it and they generally live along the two coasts in the major college towns in some vibrant intercontinental cities and there's another part of the population that has been left behind that for one reason or another has not been swept up into it so that globalization rather than make America disappear into the world has redivided it
1: hmm. I actually I want to read a quote from your book. That that kind of um, struck me. This is from Ernie the Rockies. Uh, so you write about millions of people, and here's a quote, who feel their way of life as being endangered and fear being economically left behind in this new world of slim people on low-carb diets with stylish clothes, a world where both skin tone and sexual orientation are not singular but multiple, and celebrated for that. So talk about that gap that you perceived and... Um, and, and, you know, the implications of it.
3: Yes. I took this journey, my latest journey, in the spring of 2015. So um, at that time, a name like Donald Trump was just meant a real estate developer right, in right. Manhattan a- a nothing more. How about more. a TV star? Right. Yeah. Um, which I never watched. But, uh, you know, in other words, an obscure celebrity on the New York Post. And, and I left the East Coast... And I drove across the Appalachians. And once you get into central Pennsylvania and West Virginia and the Ohio River Valley and all the way to the greater Los Angeles suburbs (laughs) with intermittent islands of college towns like Bloomington, Indiana, and a vibrant state capital like Des Moines, Iowa. (laughs) Away from that, all you saw were shelled-out towns of 20,000 or so where a lot of the storefronts were empty, where there were very few people on the street except for homeless people. Uh, I listened to a lot of conversations. What I did was be an eavesdropper. And it was all about financial problems of one sort or another or medical problems of one sort or another. There was almost no Overt discussion of politics. Hmm. So people were not talking about politics, but all of their worries and problems had to do with politics. It, it was. It, I saw a nation united by their worries, by people's right. worries.
1: Just a general dissatisfaction. It sounds like yes. too. Uh, yeah.
3: Yes, an alienation. Mm -hmm. Because a discussion of politics does not mean alienation. It means you're involved in the process. Um, But when you're not talking about it at all and your life, based on the conversations I overheard, is just awful or dreary or miserable, that's alienation.
1: Have you heard from people uh, saying, like, whoa, maybe you did hear this dissatisfaction, but... My town's great and you know, I, I don't know if things are quite as bleak as you're portraying them as.
3: Um, It's interesting because I've been a travel writer for decades and I've written books about a lot of parts of the world. You get used to people writing you and saying, I visited that place and Mm. that's not how I saw it. You know, that's very common because every view of a place begins inside you. It's very individual. But with this book, I've yet to hear that. I probably will at some point. What I've heard so far is, yes, sadly, that's very much how it looks.
1: Hmm. You know, you talked about um, that things started to be different in some ways when you cross the Appalachians, and um, I wonder why. Like, why are the Appalachians a dividing line? Um, you know, why? Why did you sense it? Sounds like such a different feeling in the middle of the country.
3: Uh, Yes, but it's more complex than that. For instance, uh, take Missouri. Um, If you went into, you know, the wealthy suburbs of St. Louis or much of Kansas City, people were part of a globalized world. They Hmm. were not alienated. Hmm. They were what you would call liberal. But yet Missouri was carried substantially by the Republicans in the recent election because between the big cities, you entered another America. Hmm. So it's a rural-urban divide. It's a coast interior divide. It's a college town, not college town divide. And, and and in the center of the country, because of the vast spaces in between towns, remember, this country is really divided between east of the 100th meridian, west of the 100th meridian. The 100th meridian runs down the center of the Dakotas, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. Mm. East of that, you've got a lot of water. West of that, you're in a semi-desert. And so the towns are less, the highways are less, the railroad tracks or less and in those places you know the outside world Europe Asia does not seem real it does not seem substantial to you
1: I'm Karen Miller you're listening to innovation hub I'm talking with Robert Kaplan author of the book earning the Rockies how geography shapes America's role in the world Um when you look at america and you compare it to its counterparts you've you've been a foreign correspondent you've uh, thought spent a lot of your life thinking about actually other countries and and foreign conflicts and that sort of thing um, how do you feel like we are different from other countries in terms of how geography has shaped us we are obviously a lot more isolated than many places you know think about a place like germany i mean they're just smack dab in the middle of a ton of countries um, and like how does that play out in our politics
3: well, I get frustrated when, uh, you know, members of the uh, the governing elite and others in the cosmopolitan elite on the East Coast say geography doesn't matter anymore, you know, technology's defeated it. And my response is, you can say that only because America has benefited so much from geography that you're in a position to ignore it. But if you were a Romanian or a Pole or a Taiwanese or places where I visited often, you always hear people say we are victims of our geography, we're prisoners of our geography. And America, you know, in terms of its economic problems, in terms of its social and political problems, is still, I would argue, structurally better off geographically better off, economically and politically better off than the problems of the Chinese, of the Russians, or of the Europeans. It's not that we're doing so great, but we're not doing quite as badly as these (laughs) other rival powers.
1: But does it, it, does it, um, I mean you talked about uh, America being disconnected and this has always been, I mean obviously World War I, World War II, they weren't fought on American soil and that made all the difference because for a lot of countries. They were, you know, there were bombs dropped there and so on. Um, Is that bad in a way too, though, because as much as we've talked about refugees and, you know, they are not, pouring over our borders from Syria in the same way uh, or from different countries in the Middle East, you know, uh, as sort of uh, coming out of the Arab Spring, Um, that is not happening to us in the same way that it's happening, let's say, to Europe, right? I mean, Europe is real. You mean, you know, you can close your eyes, but you can't make it go away.
3: Exactly. Americans are a naive people because of their geography. Every rival power, Japan, every place in Europe, Russia, China, had their urban infrastructures, their industrial infrastructures decimated to the ground during World War II, and we were untouched. Right. Europeans have throngs of refugees pouring in, not just from the war-torn Middle East, but from sub-Saharan Africa, mm. because europe Europe is so close to it, right. it's so proximate. The Chinese are terrified of trying to change the North Korean regime because if there was regime collapse in North Korea, two million North Koreans would rush over the Yalu River into northeastern China. Mm-hmm. Um, so America can talk just very flippantly about we need a better regime in North Korea because if there was a regime collapse, it would not affect us to the degree that it would a- affect the Chinese and also Americans are upset about the Mexican border about illegal immigration this is nothing whatsoever Mm. compared to what the Europeans and others have to deal with or are worried about
1: if you think ahead to uh, you know a road trip that that would occur in 20 years from now um, are, are there hints from what you've seen of what's coming
3: The very limitation of water will make it impossible for, say, Nebraska, Wyoming, Utah to suddenly be all urbanized. That's never going to happen. One of the facts in my book is while Iowa is 100 percent arable, in other words, you could grow crops anywhere Mm -hmm. there, Utah is only 3 percent arable. In other words, outside of 3 percent of Utah, you'd need a major irrigation system to grow anything. Mm So the the lack of water puts a limit on development. Um, So I think we're going to see, if I were to do this trip in 20 years, I would see even a greater New York City or a greater Washington, you know, develop into real city-states, so to speak, where New York City would exist between Albany in the north all the way to central New Jersey in the south. That I can imagine. It keeps pushing
1: out of, like, where, quote-unquote, New York is.
3: Right, exactly. But I would be very surprised if there were that much more people in the water-starved parts of the West or in the Rocky Mountain West.
1: Robert Kaplan is the author of the book, Earning the Rockies, How Geography Shapes America's Role in the World. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Robert, thank you so much. This is great.
3: It's been my pleasure.
1: I know nothing about inland waterways, but if you want to check out how water shapes and divides us, we've got a great candy-colored picture of U.S. river basins. It's at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.
0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. And from Destination Medical Center, a strategic economic initiative in Rochester, Minnesota, to build global destinations for life science, medicine, and health. Learn more at dmc.mn.
1: In 1942, the attorney general of the U.S., a guy named Francis Biddle, met with a newspaper publisher. It was a tense meeting. And Biddle's concern was that the publisher, who presided over a legendary black newspaper out of Chicago called The Defender, was not supportive enough of the war effort. So
4: Francis Biddle said that he had the power to, to shutter the black press and he was
1: willing to use it. Eitan Michaeli, who later worked at The Defender and has written a history of the paper's 100-plus years, says Biddle knew that the publisher, John Sengstack, had influence, and he didn't like how it was being used. But Sengstack had his own set of questions about involvement in a war that, in his view, was being sold with a shaky moral argument.
4: It was, of course, a question for African Americans to what degree they were going to support the war effort, particularly because the putative... Uh, mission of the war was to liberate the world for freedom and democracy. Well, if there wasn't freedom and democracy in the United States, then it was, uh, as I said, a question for African Americans to what degree they were going to participate.
1: So when Biddle, the attorney general, told Sangstack that not falling into line when it came to the war effort could mean the closure of his paper, Sangstack did something that it's kind of hard to imagine doing.
4: John Sangstack, frankly, called his bluff said, you do have that power. Why don't you go ahead and do it? And Biddle was flabbergasted for a moment. And then Mr. Sengstack, uh told him, look, If you don't want to shutter the black press, here's another option. Why don't you open up access to the black press to the federal government? Whenever we try to get an interview with the secretary of the Navy, we're refused. Whenever we try to get information from anywhere in the military, we're refused. Whenever we try to get information from the White House, we're refused. What do you expect us to print when we don't have your side of the story? If you want your side of the story in the newspaper, you have to give us your side of the story. And Francis Biddle, being a relatively open-minded person for his era, saw the logic and was uh, persuaded by Mr. Sengstack and actually became an ally uh, with Mr. Sengstack to get more access to the black press, um, to the Roosevelt administration.
1: That power, the power to change policy, to open up the White House press corps to black reporters, that came from a paper that had already exerted tremendous power. Mick Haley argues in his book, The Defender, how the legendary black newspaper changed America, that by the 1940s, the paper had altered the demographics of America itself. Robert Abbott, who founded the paper, and by the way, was John Sengstack's uncle, had noticed something very important in the early years of the 20th century. There was a way to undermine the Jim Crow system of segregation in the South. Bring black workers up north. Seven million people moved out of the South during the Great Migration, which shaped culture, the economy, politics. Convincing people to move, though, meant that the Defender had to be distributed in the South. And that wasn't easy because newspapers in the South were restricted in terms of what they could print, and the Defender wasn't.
4: In 1911, there was a case in which uh, there was an attempted lynching where a man who had murdered um, the owner of a plantation uh, where he worked, the white-owned newspapers said that the whole incident was because of a financial situation or because of some sort of misunderstanding. Well, the defender was able to print that the whole incident took place because the plantation owner had raped the man's wife. Hmm. You know, rape, frankly, did not occur in the white-owned Uh, newspapers. There was always a misunderstanding. There was always some sort of financial um, situation. There was always something kind of murky and mysterious about why these kinds of incidents took place. And it was never the case that a white person had uh, raped an African-American woman. So when the Defender printed details like that, it of course uh, rang true to its readers and frankly uh, was able to uh, make sense of all the, the atrocities that took place. So the Defender, um, by printing these kinds of stories, was able to establish itself as a voice of integrity, as a voice of veracity, and a voice that could be trusted. When then the editorial side of the newspaper began to tell people, you should come to the North, people listened because they trusted what was there on the news page.
1: Was there ever a time when people in the South or in the North said, listen— I mean, this paper is getting too honest, frankly, about what's happening. We've got to shut it down.
4: Oh, there were multiple efforts to shutter the Defender throughout the South. Um, The incident that I mentioned in 1911, in that case, the Southern uh, authorities from from the town that was being reported on, it was the town of Washington, Georgia, uh, were so upset that the Defender um, printed the truth about what had happened that they said that uh, if what the Defender has printed, and this is the Atlanta, they reported in the Atlanta Constitution and the Atlanta Georgia and and news, hmm. um, and they reported that the people of these of the town of Washington, Georgia were so upset by by what they had read in the Defender, and they said that if if what the Defender wrote was true, this was uh, a strike against the honor and integrity of the entire South, the entire white South. Hmm. So, as a result, they sent Pinkerton detectives up to Chicago to arrest Robert Abbott. But by this time, the, sh- the community in Chicago, the African American community in Chicago, was 40,000 people strong. They had their own National Guard unit, their own African American police officers, their own elected officials. Hmm. And frankly, there was no way that two Pinkerton detectives (laughs) equipped only with a warrant from the state of Georgia were going to uh, overcome Hmm. that kind of infrastructure. And Robert Abbott was able to call on a prominent attorney and a prominent physician and other prominent citizens of of Chicago to come and assist him and and chase the Pinkerton uh, detectives away.
1: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking to Eitan Michele, author of The Defender, How the Legendary Black Newspaper Changed America. I mentioned uh, getting black reporters into the White House press corps. It was not long before The Defender was taking on very big national issues like integrating the military. And that wasn't just important uh, for the military, but it was kind of this cultural marker for all sorts of integration that was uh, yet to come.
4: Of course, this was. Uh, we have to we have to go back in time a little bit to the way people thought back then, and so the ability to fight in war was an issue of manliness. It was an issue of maturity, and the ability to fight for one's country was was an honor, but it was also a mark of uh, your citizenship. So African Americans, since the Revolutionary War, it has to be said, had fought for the right to fight alongside their white compatriots. There were segregated African-American units, usually led by white officers. And in 1948, with Harry Truman running for his first term as the elected president of the United States, uh, Harry Truman came to John Sengstack and asked for his endorsement. And Mr. Sengstack was in a very strong position to say, well, if you want the support of the black press, and in particular, the Chicago Defender, you're going to have to do something dramatic to win over African-American voters. And that dramatic action was determined to be, or Mr. Sengstack determined that to be, an executive order to integrate the U.S. Armed Forces, Mm. which President Truman did issue just a few weeks before the election. And he also created a commission to effect the integration of the armed forces and made Mr. Sengstack a member of that commission.
1: Uh, did Truman was that like uh, a real push, and he didn't want to do it, or was he was he you know uh, kind of on board and like okay, I understand, I'll do it, no problem.
4: Oh, it was it was a hard fought negotiation, okay. but uh, uh, frankly, uh, uh, Mr. Senkcec had um, uh, 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 had leverage there because the African American vote was essential. If you look at the electoral results or the election results from nineteen forty eight. The African-American community in Illinois and Ohio was absolutely decisive Hmm. in in the in the results. If you look at if you know the famous um, Dewey defeats Truman headline. I do. And uh, there's a great picture of
1: Truman holding up that paper with like a huge smile on his face because obviously they got it wrong.
4: Well, that's right. And now that was a copy of the Chicago Tribune. And while unfortunate, the editor of the Tribune that that had to make a decision that evening as mm. as his deadline was approaching, he looked at the the exit polls, he looked at the initial uh, Results of of uh, the the polls that were coming in, and he said, "Well, unless the African American community comes out in unprecedented numbers for Harry Truman, which seemed unlikely com- as compared with Franklin Roosevelt, there's no way that that uh, the Truman can win Illinois, and if he loses Illinois, he won't win the country." Mm. So the the Tribune editor made what what I would describe as an educated guess. Um, the one piece of information that he did not have was that John Sangstack and Congressman Bill Dawson, the the uh, then one of two African American congressmen in the United States, had spent weeks before the election barnstorming around the country to try to. Uh, Generate enthusiasm among African American voters, so that unprecedented turnout for Truman from uh, the African American community was very much the result Mm. of of John Sengstack's direct efforts, which the editor of the Tribune um, uh, was not privy to. Mm.
1: So I I don't want to talk about the Defender without mentioning uh, Barack Obama. Uh, You write about Obama walking into the offices of this newspaper. He's Mm. running for the House of Representatives. His suit is worn. People are kind of like, yes. "What's up with this guy?" Um, he does not win the the uh, race for the House of Representatives. In fact, he's crushed. Um, how did this newspaper influence, change, intersect, sort of the the career of uh, of, of Barack Obama?
4: So, Barack Obama that in that race was a state senator, and he was a state senator who was not from Chicago. Uh, did not have a a history here or a pedigree here. So there was a lot of resentment toward Barack Obama, even um, though he was an elected official. And when he ran for Congress, and this is now in 2000, he ran against Bobby Rush, who was a former Black Panther, was the one who discovered the bloody and bullet-riddled apartment where Fred Hampton Uh, had been killed by Chicago police. So Bobby Rush was part of the firmament of Chicago, and it was um, an audacious move, to say the least, uh, for Barack Obama to go after him at that time. That said, the defender looked at Barack Obama, looked at his talents, looked at his accomplishments, such as they were at that point, and said, this is a talented individual. Mm -hmm. This is a decent person with integrity, and even though he has failed in this race and has done some things that we're not so sure about, we should give him a chance. So through its editorial pages, the Defender was able to give Barack Obama a stamp of approval and legitimacy that allowed him to build his base in the African-American community in Chicago, and such that uh, for Barack Obama, this was the infrastructure that he needed to get to the presidency. I do not think that Barack Obama could have become president from any other state. Hmm.
1: So here you've written, I'm going to say, a 600 page book <laughs> yes. about a uh, about a a black newspaper that was really important in sort of shifting the demography of the country, as you said, making these political deals that changed history. Um, but we are also at this moment where every kind of newspaper uh, is very often down on their luck. We've seen uh, pretty big newspapers, regional newspapers, shut down um, in recent years. Um, what is happening to Black-owned newspapers, to these sort of voices of the community? Are they moving somewhere else? Are they still red? What's happening? Well,
4: African-American newspapers have always had to be sustainable. They frankly never have received the support of white advertisers or uh, white business owners in in other ways. And so they've had to depend in large proportion on their readership and on their communities to support the newspapers. Mm. Um, And they continue today. African-American newspapers, um, The Defender is still there, publishing um, not daily as it was when I worked there in the 1990s, but it's still publishing weekly. And it still punches well above its weight, I would say, as a publication that is not just representative of one community within Chicago, um, but is representative really of an entire cause and history within the United States, within America. Hmm. And so the Defender and the black press will continue um, to persist and exist in that way as a voice of conscience, as a voice of counter-propaganda to what's going on in the mainstream press and and in other media. And and you you
1: think this will—you think— The Defender and other papers will continue on and not necessarily fold the way that sort of, you know, general newspapers, regional newspapers have.
4: Well, I know that the black press will continue as a news source Mm. and that African-American individuals coming together to form a coherent voice, that will definitely continue. Mm. You find that all over the the Twitterverse for sure um, and on Facebook and other social media as well.
1: Mm. So finally, what was it like for you to work at this paper, not as an African American? Here you are working at this really important historical paper that you clearly fell in love with, wrote a big book about, spent years researching. Did it feel odd? Explain to me what that was like for you. Well,
4: so I'm a white Jewish guy from upstate New York. I got a degree in English lit from the University of Chicago. And the way that I got to the Defender was not through any particular interest in African-American history or civil rights or anything like that, but simply because I was looking for a writing job. And a friend of mine who was also a white Jewish University of Chicago grad uh, offered to uh, recommend me to replace him was only when I got to the newspaper and began to scan the lobby and saw the historic copies of the newspaper in a glass case, saw Robert Abbott's portrait gazing down on me, saw his words inscribed in the floor of the lobby, That's when I really began to understand that I was somewhere special. Mm -hmm. And when I went to go talk to the city editor, I very awkwardly, for a job interview, asked her if if it was okay uh, that I was a white guy that wanted to work (laughs) there. And she laughed and said that white folks have always worked at The Defender. And it was absolutely true. I wasn't the first white person to work at The Defender. I wasn't even the 101st white person to work at The Defender. The cause of an integrated America, the cause of racial justice has never been simply an African-American struggle. It is a struggle for white people as well as for African-Americans. And we have to uh, join that fight for our own um, sanity and for our own sense of justice. I think that's essential. And that's where The Defender has always stood. And that's why it has always made room for white employees to be a part of the newspaper.
1: Aton Micheli is the author of The Defender, How the Legendary Black Newspaper Changed America. He was also an editor there. Aton, thanks so much for being here.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Photojournalist Bobby abbott Sangstack was the last Sangstack to serve as editor of the Chicago Defender, and he died just a few weeks ago. You can check out some of his photographs online at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show, senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also had production help this week from Matt Toda. You can always grab our podcast in iTunes or on SoundCloud or wherever you like to get your podcasts. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation
0: Hub. Innovation Hub is sponsored by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. And by the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible.
3: PRI.